Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and more. Right CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche, or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Transforming our own habits is notoriously challenging and changing clinical practice habits even more so. But my guest today shares strategies that CME practitioners can apply to education design and implementation based on understanding clinician readiness to change. Sarah Johnson, PhD, is co-president and CEO of ProChange Behaviour Solutions, a behaviour change consulting firm and solution provider that empowers people to experience life-changing breakthroughs in health and well-being. Sarah also co-edits the American Journal of Health Promotion and contributes to the Knowing Well, Being Well, practitioner-focused section that focuses on emerging trends in health promotion and well-being. She's been applying and refining the trans-theoretical model of change for over two decades, and in our conversation she explains how to apply the five stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance, to understand readiness for change as a foundation for clinician-focused education, as well as multi-level community-based education. Join us. Welcome, Sarah. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. I'm so pleased to be here. It's really good to to see you. We've tried a couple of times to get this on the schedule and we're here now and I'm very, very grateful for that. So please tell listeners who you are and share something about the work that you do. Happy to. I actually wear many hats, but the role most relevant to the conversation we're going to have today is that I'm the co-president and CEO of ProChange Behavior Solutions. And we are now almost a 26-year-old research and development company, a behavior change consulting firm and solution provider based in Rhode Island. And our mission really is to help individuals and organizations experience life-changing behavior change breakthroughs through the application of behavior change science. 26 years is no mean feat to be in, <laughs> yeah. in business at all, but to be in the kind of business that you do, because I'm sure that there are, well, I don't know, you tell me that there are trends in the demand for the kind of research that you do, and you're going to tell us more about the kind of research that you do, I'm quite sure. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, it's interesting. Behavior change is, I think, one of those evergreen challenges that we all face. And so there are, I think, never any shortage of opportunities to apply the type of best practices and behavior change science that we specialize in researching and implementing. And what's your professional, your disciplinary background? I mean, how did you how did you wind up in in behavior change? It's such an interesting question. I, by training, I'm actually a clinical psychologist. I have my PhD in clinical health psychology, and I found my way to pro change because Jim Prochaska, who is one of the lead developers of the trans theoretical model, was starting a small business to help ensure that behavior change science could get out of academia and into the real world. And that was so aligned with my mission that I thought, well, why not? And here I am <laughs> all these years later, still here. So can you give us, I know we're going to talk about a current project, a, a large project that you're working on, but could you just give us a flavor of, you know, the kinds of work that you do? Certainly. The majority of our work is really in the design of software solutions to help individuals on their unique behavior change journeys. So we're leveraging large databases and artificial intelligence to develop individually tailored health behavior change solutions to assist people in navigating the complexities of behavior changes. I mean, everything from weight management to tobacco cessation to substance use disorder and informed decision-making about medical procedures. And often our initiatives involve some other level of intervention, whether that be caregivers or healthcare providers or the organizations in which people work. And when you're talking about software solutions, that sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, as though that focuses very much on internal motivation, or is there a relationship between it? internal and external motivation in that kind of software piece? Or is that the intervention piece? Does that really kind of focus on the external motivation part of behavior change? And you're going to tell me it's more complex than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the answer is both and, right? So often what we're doing is assessing where someone is in their behavior change journey, and then using principles from models like the trans theoretical model but also communication frameworks and principles from other theories of health behavior change to really discern what message would be the most helpful to an individual at a given moment, and then how best to frame that message and how to deliver it to activate their own internal behavior change journey. And sometimes that does involve external factors, but our goal is to to activate their own individual behavior change journey. And so at the moment you're working, well, I'm sure you're working on more than one project, but one of the large projects that you're working on at the moment is training community, you know, healthcare extenders in the community to address disparities and particularly in relation to diabetes. So could you talk a little bit about what this program is and how it started? Absolutely. Much of my work, as I mentioned a little while ago, is truly multi-level initiative building. And that's so important because all of us are influenced by multiple spheres of influence in which we're operating. There are multiple factors operating on our behavior at any one time. And there are a number of structural factors and systemic factors that really often lend themselves to the perpetuation of health disparities. And one of the ways in which that shows up is in the fact that 
Black Americans are disproportionately affected by diabetes and by prediabetes, and unfortunately, also less likely to participate in the diabetes prevention program. So we were very fortunate to meet Dr. Stephen Thomas from the University of Maryland Center for Health Equity, who has had, I think, more than a decade's worth of experience now in working closely with Black barbers and stylists to transform mm-hmm. and build on the longstanding tradition of Black barbers and stylists using their trusted place within the community to be disseminators of health promotion and disease prevention initiatives. So they've had a ton of success in this multi-stakeholder network that they call Health Advocates in Reach and Research, or the HAIR Network. Mm. Oh, great. I love that. Yeah, isn't that a great acronym? Yeah. And intervening on everything from colorectal cancer screening to flu vaccines, and most recently, even to COVID vaccines. So they created during the COVID pandemic an enormous nationwide initiative called Shots in the Shop, mm-hmm. where barbers and stylists were trying to disseminate accurate information and try to dispel some of the misinformation people had about the COVID vaccine. And as they like to say, help people move away from the hell no wall, which we would characterize as pre-contemplation, <laughs> to having more confidence in and readiness to be vaccinated. And even had vaccine events in the shops and in the salons in many places, including in Maryland. And having heard about this work, we reached out to Dr. Thomas and asked if we could collaborate on an initiative that we're trying to (laughs) be inspired by his creative naming skills calling Communities United Together for Health or Cut for Health. And it really involves a number of components, one of which is an interactive text messaging program that we're using to assess people's risk for prediabetes, because as you know well, many people who have prediabetes are unaware that they do. Mm -hmm. And then we're delivering tailored behavior change messages to assess and increase people's readiness to participate in the diabetes prevention program, to assess and increase their readiness to engage in the health behaviors that we know are so important to the prevention of diabetes, offering vegetable intake, physical activity, et cetera, and then also to assess and help close gaps in unmet social needs by providing geographically matched resources to address things like food insecurity or transportation concerns. Mm -hmm. So that part in and of itself is exciting, but what's even more exciting is that we're training the barbers and stylists in collaboration with some colleagues at Prevention to be certified lifestyle coaches for the Diabetes Prevention Program. And if their clients want to participate with them, they'll be able, the barbers and stylists will then be able to use a digital platform called the Health and Lifestyle Training Platform that was developed by CAPA to administer virtually the diabetes prevention program. And then our text messages will continue to deliver tailored guidance to continue to support the client's behavior change journey alongside the barber or stylist who's acting as a lifestyle coach and to hopefully increase retention in the diabetes prevention program. So it's a really exciting initiative. Yeah, you called it multi-level, and there are so many (laughs) levels there and levels of question too. So I want to start first with, what's the recruitment process like for pulling barbers and stylists into the program? And do you meet, you know, enthusiasm resistance, all of the above, you know, what, what is the kind of community response to 
involvement in this kind of program? The response among barbers and stylists has been overwhelmingly positive. We have been just thrilled that many of the barbers and stylists we've invited to be involved, which we're in the process of doing right now, have very enthusiastically said that they can't wait to be involved and that this really is something that they're already doing. So to have the opportunity to build upon and further enhance their skills is really exciting for them. Many of them see disseminating health information as a critical part of their role in the community. So this really is just enhancing and building upon what they're already doing. So they've been really excited. And then we'll be kicking off recruitment in June for the community. And they'll be inviting clients in their shops and salons to text the trigger word, which in this case is cut to a local phone number. Mm -hmm. And it's quite easy to get enrolled. Yeah. And it's an easy word. (laughs) word (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. I love that. You, you talked about assessing readiness for change, and obviously mm-hmm. that's a big part of the Prochaska model. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what that involves and why that's important when we're talking about behavior change? Absolutely. I think probably everyone listening has had the experience that changing behavior can be challenging. And in part, that's because at times we're trying to use the wrong strategy at the wrong moment. So We like to explain that behavior change really unfolds along a continuum and that we can break that continuum down into five really pretty distinct stages of change or levels of readiness, if you will. Individuals in pre-contemplation are not intending to make a behavior change in the next six months. And that may be because they have past failed change attempts. So they've tried everything and, and haven't been able to succeed in a behavior change. Or it could be because they're unaware like we were talking about many people with prediabetes aren't aware mm-hmm. or they're in denial because they've had friends, you know, my uncle Joe smoked until he was 90 and he was fine. So there can be a number of reasons why <laughs> someone is in pre-contemplation. What we really want to stress though, is that it's important not to confuse lack of readiness with lack of a desire. Some people very much want mm-hmm. to change or wish they could, but may not yet be ready to actively engage in the change process. And Depending on the behavior, that can be as much as 40% of your target population. Wow. Individuals in contemplation, which is the next stage, recognize that there are benefits to changing, but are also really acutely aware of the barriers that could get in their way. So often that results in a lot of ambivalence and people can get stuck Mm -hmm. in contemplation for quite some time. I always like to joke that I've been in contemplation for doing yoga for about 20 years. I really like it. But I can't quite make it a regular practice. Although I'm a regular exerciser. So it's, you know, your readiness to engage in even similar behaviors can vary. Mm -hmm. And again, depending on the behavior, that can be another 40% of individuals in your target population. And then the preparation stage is the stage for which most of our field is really well prepared. (laughs) It's the stage that is in which people are really ready to make a behavior change often have taken some small steps in the right direction and are actively planning and and on the cusp of of making their own behavior change efforts. And then when people are in action, they've recently made a behavior change and often are struggling to sustain or maintain that change. Mm. And it's a little shaky. So, you know, maybe they've recently started exercising, but if the weather's bad or if a friend invites them to do something else, they're likely to regress. And then in maintenance, people have made and sustained the behavior change for, you know, a significant period of time. We often define that as a six-month period. And 
at that stage, they're feeling much more confident about their ability to sustain that behavior in the long term and often have really shifted their view of themselves and now see themselves as someone who has adopted that behavior. So I am now a healthy eater. I am now a regular exerciser or I am a runner or I'm a non-smoker. So in the health behavior realm, we've done a lot of research to help identify these stages of change. And for Mm -hmm. probably 15 years or so now, we've been working with colleagues in the continuing professional development space to apply these same Mm -hmm. principles from behavior change science to continuing professional development and helping to think through how we can understand the readiness of clinicians to adopt a particular clinical Mm -hmm. performance improvement. Well, I'm glad you raised that because I was going to ask, I, I mean, I know that you, you've, you've been working, you know, over the years with CPD and, and CME mm-hmm. as well. I, I guess my question is, sometimes it feels as though that readiness to change piece is, as a community, we skip over that. Mm. Is that something you've, you've seen in, in the work that you've done? There's a there's an we eagerness to get <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, but certainly in CME and CPD, yes. Yeah. I think a well-intentioned eagerness to skip mm-hmm. over that step. Mm-hmm. And what what are the consequences of not assessing readiness to change? I think the biggest potential consequence or implication is that our educational initiatives or clinical performance improvement initiatives won't meet the needs of the entire audience of learners. Um, So to really truly ensure that you're going to meet the needs of everyone in your target audience, you really do need to be mindful of the different levels of readiness that may be present and use behavior change strategies to help people move along to the next stage of change. What are some simple strategies that education providers can use to do that readiness assessment? Well, often the best place to start to do the readiness assessment is to really concretely define what the clinical practice performance improvement is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, for example, you want clinicians to routinely be using a particular diagnostic procedure or a particular therapeutic approach or a specific interprofessional communication strategy, whatever the performance improvement is you're looking for, it's important to really concretely define that in as rigorously as possible. We often talk about what's the gold standard of the particular behavior you're trying to promote. And then you can simply ask people about their readiness to engage in that behavior or that clinical practice. Now, in some cases, that's not practical. And that's okay if there's not an ability to assess the readiness of each of the individual participants. You can also infuse behavior change messages that would help you reach even those who are not yet ready. So for example, Mm. when you're thinking about the individuals who might be in that pre-contemplation or not yet ready stage, one of the most important strategies is to really highlight the benefits of a particular behavior. And the more benefits, the better. And the more diverse the benefits are, the better. So maybe a particular clinical practice improves outcomes and saves money and reduces burden on colleagues. or So to think as Mm -hmm. broadly as possible about the potential benefits is important and to really emphasize those. Whereas in contemplation, to help resolve some of that ambivalence, we really want to help bring the barriers down to the extent that we can and address those head on. And also to think about the 
individual's identity because self-reevaluation or who they think of themselves or how they think of themselves is an important part of mediating that transition from contemplation to preparation. And then in preparation, we can really encourage the person to make a specific plan for implementing the behavior change or the performance improvement and to make that plan as specific as possible and to make their commitment to that plan as public as possible. And then in action, one helpful strategy is to provide social support and to shift your environment to support the behavior change. So maybe that's through a smart set and an electronic health record or some other alert, Hmm. or maybe that's, you know, through colleagues encouraging you or sharing the way that they've dealt with whatever's getting in their way of implementing this particular performance improvement. Mm -hmm. And then in maintenance, social support continues to be important. And really sort of planning ahead for unusual circumstances can also be a way to help prevent regression back to either old Mm. practices or old behaviors. I I love the way that you lay that out because it gives a lot of really practical information for writers who are working on the content side of education, because often it's it's challenging to know, you know, how to frame those messages. Yes. And uh, the points at which the messaging can change. So that's really helpful. Thanks for for sharing that in as much detail. And and you also mentioned identity. And it it does, you know, as you were talking at the beginning of our conversation, it definitely struck me that so much of what you're talking about requires a transformation of identity. It's not the connection between identity and behavior is so is so tightly aligned. So coming back to the diabetes prevention program, you mentioned obviously barbers and and stylists, but who are the other stakeholders who are involved and which stakeholders need to be involved in a large multi-level initiative like this? Oh, that's such a great question. In the Copper Health Initiative, we really involved a number of stakeholders. So we started out first by going to the Maryland Community Research Advisory Board which is a group of 25 community members who meets regularly to ensure that research is respectful of the community and is taking into account the unique needs of the community. And they provided a lot of really insightful feedback about the protocol. And then we had a series of human-centered design sessions, a series of four of those Mm. sessions that lasted two and a half hours each that included barbers and stylists, as well as community members and some experts in the diabetes prevention program. And really had a very collaborative session in which we talked about the potential design of this intervention and what some of the potential barriers might be and what some of the promotional materials should look like and even what the name of the program should be. So there was a very collaborative and iterative process that helped inform the whole design of the initiative. And that really does tend to work well when many voices are contributing to the final product. And when mo- many voices are contributing, there's also the potential for a few more fault lines. Did you come across any you know, points of resistance that you had to sort of navigate as a group in order to get the project off the ground? Do you know, I, I can certainly see that that could happen. It did not in this case. And I think that's because everyone came to the table with such a spirit of curiosity and intellectual humility. Mm-hmm. and. No one felt that they were the expert in the room. We all recognized that we had so much to learn from one another. So it was a very energizing and inspiring process. And um, 
I think no one had any really hard held assumptions that needed to be upheld that people really came in so open-minded about all the possibilities and that did work quite well. And you know who in this kind of collaborative approach who took or who is taking the lead in you know driving the project forward? That's a good question. I I would say that it's a group effort. It really takes a village. <laughs> so um yeah. pro changes playing an important role in project management and certainly in the development of the technical solutions, the interactive text messaging program. And one of the components we didn't talk about was that we're sending the individuals who enroll in the diabetes prevention program a smart scale so that we can capture some of their weight data and use that to influence their messaging. So our technology team is taking the lead on that. And our colleagues Mm -hmm. at the University of Maryland, led by Dr. Thomas, are really taking the lead and the colleagues in the Hair Network are taking the lead on helping to recruit barbers and stylists. And their project management team is running a lot of that part of the logistics. So it really is a very collective effort. And where are you in the rollout of the project at the moment? And how long is it going to last? Well, we are actually at such an exciting phase. So we are we have had two meetings this week. We already have, I want to say, about eight, somewhere between 15 and 20 barbers and stylists who've agreed to participate and our training for them will start at the end of April. And then our recruitment of participants will start in June. And we will follow participants for a total of 15 months so that if they do enroll in the DPP, we'll have time to capture their data. So it's a year. Yeah, it'll be a a 15 month engagement though. We'll have a rolling three month recruitment window and the final follow up will be 15 months after we start recruitment. And what happens at the end of that kind of project once, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, social support for people who are in the maintenance stage, but, you know, for, for something as large as this, people are very excited to participate and, you know, there's all of that momentum, but at some point the project has to end. How do you off-ramp? Yeah, so th- I'm so glad you asked because we've been thinking a lot about the sustainability of this type of approach. The first mm-hmm exciting thing we think from a sustainability perspective is that the barbers and stylists are being trained as lifestyle coaches and those will be lifelong skills Mm. that they have and can continue to use long beyond the end of this particular demonstration project and about mm, 11 months into the project we'll be giving them a refresher training because that's one of the requirements to be a certified lifestyle coach okay and then they'll continue to take those skills into all of their interactions In addition, we've been really mindful about building the tools, the technology tools to be easily scaled to other communities so that hopefully Mm. we can activate barbers and stylists and other faith leaders who are part of health ministries and churches throughout the country. So really thinking broadly about other community health workers who operate in health equity zones or in other settings about how this could be scaled to other settings and to other states and to barbers shops and, and salons across the country. but. Also think and hope that we're making a difference in the community in that, you know, we talked about those spheres of influence earlier that, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll be recruiting at least 667, likely more individuals to participate in this particular trial, each of whom Mm -hmm. has ripple effects of their own on their family and friends. So we hope that we're helping to shift the social norms in the communities in which we're operating as well. And presumably you're going to publish at the end of this process. You described it as a trial. So you've gone through IRP and all that torturous (laughs) process on its own. (laughs) Yes. So that's exactly right. We are um, measuring a number of outcomes 
including impact on participation in the diabetes prevention program, increased, hopefully increased referrals to the diabetes prevention program, either with the barber or stylist or in the community. As I mentioned, we're going to have objectively measured weight. We have a whole host of self-reported outcomes, and we're going to be carefully monitoring a number of process outcomes. So we'll have a big story to tell for sure about the process itself and about the outcomes at the end of the trial. Yeah, that's a, a huge, a huge data set. And talking of publication, you're also a co-editor of Knowing Well and Being Well. Can you talk a little bit, just to kind of wrap us up, about the journal, what, what your focus is and the meaning of that work to you? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Thank you so much. So Knowing Well, Being Well is a special section of each of uh, the eight issues a year of the American Journal of Health Promotion. And American Journal of Health Promotion is a SAGE journal that's really focused on advancing the science of health promotion and disease prevention. And Knowing Well, Being Well is a special section that's really more practitioner-oriented that's meant to highlight and hopefully advance our thinking about the practice of of health promotion and the promotion of well-being by really focusing on emerging trends. So it's been so exciting. I've been doing this now for, I think, almost eight years. And yeah, it's exciting because we really can identify emerging trends and then recruit authors to contribute. And we've tackled everything from the the most recent issue that was published was about death, advanced advanced care planning and grief. And oh, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. How employers can play an important role in thinking through their benefit design to support advanced care planning and grieving when employers are grieving. Prior to that, we've done issues on intellectual humility, substance use and mental health amid the pandemic, the science of teamwork. I'm just thinking of recent ones. Yeah. Shared value, the ways in which organizations can contribute to the greater good, purpose-driven organizations, social connection, the list goes on and on. And the nice thing is it's open source, freely available for anyone who would like to to take a look. And I co-edit, so I'm responsible for four issues a year, but my co-editor, Rachel Hankey, also does four issues a year, and she's doing one now on fun. (laughs) So there's there's a variety. (laughs) Yeah, there's a real variety of topics that are tackled and it's truly a joy. It also sounds like it's a really it's got a really practical focus. It absolutely does. Often we're having experts in a particular field contribute, but also organizations who are putting in their own organizations initiatives related to a specific topic. So for mm-hmm. example, on the shared value issue, we um, the shared value initiative contributed some really important guidance about the ways in which organizations can be thinking about shared value. And then Abbott contributed a wonderful case study about the ways in which they're doing a lot of really wonderful public health initiatives globally to help contribute to shared value. And thinking about those, this is my last question, I promise, but thinking about the kinds of things that you address in in that part of the journal, Knowing Well, Being Well, it sounds like so many of those are relevant to the work that practitioners in the continuing medical education and continuing professional development community do. Obviously, a lot of education is very kind of, you know, disease and therapeutic area oriented, but there's, I'm not sure if I would call it a shift, but there are definitely pockets where there's a wider perspective. So for mm-hmm. instance, the kind of obvious thing at the moment is equity. A lot of people are very kind of focused on health equity in in education and how you build that into CME. 
But it sounds as though the sorts of things that are in the journal are things that the CME community could do well to pay attention to and and focus on. That wasn't really a question. It was an an observation of sorts. (laughs) I certainly hope so. (laughs) It's really hard to separate those things. And there's so much overlap. So I couldn't agree more. The science of teamwork issue is a really good example. Yes. But there are a number of other examples. So for example, the next issue that I'll be submitting, which will be published later this year, is about lifestyle medicine and the ways in which employers can be agents of change in advocating for and advancing lifestyle medicine. But lifestyle medicine is not only important for the prevention, management, and reversal of chronic diseases, it is in and of itself an approach that could hopefully help eliminate some health disparities. So these things are also inextricably linked with one another, and you are absolutely right. In fact, health equity will be the theme of next year's Art and Science of Health Promotion Conference, which will be in Hilton Head, I believe, in April of 2024. And um, okay. there's likely to be an issue of knowing well-being well on that very topic. So these things are all absolutely inextricably related. Sarah Johnson, wearer of many, many hats. Thank you <laughs> so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine. Well, Alex, thank you again so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.